Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Yeah, I hope you can understand this accent of mine. I can't help it. I was born with it. So uh, anyway, originally from Australia. Really? Okay. Well, I think yours sound pretty good. And whenever I go somewhere, people always wish I had an American accent because it's much easier to understand. So um, anyway, um, how are you enjoying the meetings? Aren't they wonderful? It's just nice to be together again, isn't it? And um, what I've really enjoyed is just the, the, not only the, the big meetings themselves, but the personal interactions. And some of the, the people I've met, like um, yesterday I met, um, just making sure I'm getting his right name right, Greg Carlson. Who's ever driven or walked past somebody asking for money or, and you, you just, you know if you give them a dollar, it's going to be spent on something that's, that's not going to be good for them. Greg Carlson's running this just wonderful homeless ministry over in Salisbury in Maryland. And just to sit and to listen to him tell his story, I've got to tell you, that was just fantastic. You know, met so many pastors doing so many wonderful things. But I'd like you to think with me about elders. Elders that have shaped you. There was, there was one elder, I can remember I was in my late, late 20s, new to ministry, and my wife and I were sent to a, a pretty tough district. We were caring for 500 people, four different congregations. We were about 400 miles from the conference office and 200 miles from the nearest pastor, other Seventh-day Adventist pastor. And... This church had a reputation. They normally had a very experienced seasoned pastor. It was their last port of call before retirement. And I arrived there and some, in the history of this church, there was a pastor that arrived, the truck arrived with, their, with all their stuff on a Friday. The guy preached on Sabbath. One phone call was made. The conference president called the pastor and said, uh, don't unpack anymore. The truck's coming back for you on Sunday morning. And I was going to this church. Um, this, this church just ate pastors for lunch, Sabbath lunch, <laughs> literally. Do you know what I mean? And, and I arrived there and... And they, they were expecting somebody a lot older, and I heard two of the young single guys in the back pew of the church talking about the new pastor's daughter. And they, you know, we didn't have any kids. He was talking about my wife. <laughs> they were expecting the pastor to have a daughter that age, if you know what I mean. And it, was, it was quite intimidating that they... They wanted to eat me for lunch and these young guys wanted me dead so they could date my daughter, date my wife. <laughs> so, and then there was an elder called Lionel. I've got to tell you about Lionel. Lionel was everything that that church wasn't. Did, did you know what I mean? Lionel put an elder's arm around me and just, what an incredible support. He was a practical man. He was an older man. He was a beautiful man. Jesus really lived in his heart. And he helped me navigate a three-year stay in that church. He would take me for a drive with a couple of the other elders down on the riverbank, and we would just sit there, pray and talk. And he would listen. It was, it was a tough experience because one of the other congregations there I was pastoring, I preached the first sermon there and I was, after the sermon and the benediction, I was kind of heading for the door to shake hands and one of the members said, not so fast, Pastor, take a seat. We've got some questions for you. And so then began a, an unexpected interview in front of the whole congregation for 60 to 90 minutes in front of everyone, everyone stayed and they wanted to know what this new pastor thought 
about everything. And uh, it was a tough initiation. But Lionel, Lionel loved me. I was young, I was a kid, I didn't know what I was up to. I was floundering and an elder rescued me. I love elders, I gotta tell you. Now there can be some difficult elders, you know, make no mistake. I, we've all been bitten, but there's beautiful elders. And, and I'd like to talk about the qualities and the traits. Elders, they're often our biggest and best supporters, financially, with their heart and soul, their effort. And they work for free. Mm. You, you know, elders, deacons, deaconesses, for me, they're the engine room of the local church. Do you, you know? And it's, it's tragic that at times pastors, elders, deacons, deaconesses, with good intentions that there can be animosity and friction. It's an absolute tragedy. The world's not big enough. And so this morning I'd just like to explore, and I'm wondering, does, does anyone have an experience with an elder that they'd like to share? Something that, that really positively transformed their ministry? Is, is there somebody? Yeah, thanks. I mean, come, come and stand here. Take the microphone. It's all being recorded. You didn't know that before you put your hand up, but it's good that you know now. Okay. So when I was in seminary at Andrews, I, I was part of a little small local church. And the elder there, I remember one day, he says, hey, I'm going to go do visitation this afternoon. Do you want to come? Just, um, he said to you. To me, right. He knew I was an intern. He's like, do you want to go with me? And I was like, if I say no, that's going to look bad, right? So I'm just like, okay, yeah, sure, I'll go. And he did this more than once. He would just take me visiting and um, visiting with him. And after every visitation, he said, what did you notice? What did you notice about this person? What did you learn? And the biggest thing for me was that he would just have the initiative to go up to me and say, hey, why don't you come visiting with me? He didn't have to do, to do that to me. I was under the supervision of the pastor. But he noticed me. And to this day, he's someone that um, I'll call and I'll ask for wisdom on, on things. And he'll pick up the phone and he'll, he'll guide me through, through things. But just that taking me under his wing and mentoring me was a big deal. So that was pretty special. That was uh, my experience with him. So. Sweet. Thank you. Anyone else got an experience? Okay, no worries. Now, I'd like you to notice this picture. The good-looking guy on the right, his name's Rob. Rob Hansford. He's an elder in Australia, and he did this bike ride with us from Washington, D.C. to St. Louis. I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. But Rob is a local church elder, very successful guy. He's a chief financial officer for a, a, a large corporate firm in Brisbane, Australia. He's been an elder for at least 10 or 15 years. He had this feeling of intimidation about sharing his faith and we invited him on this bike ride where we were going to be sharing our faith during the bike ride and one of the fantastic things and this is just from a couple of weeks ago one of these the fantastic things was was to see this elder grow in his experience of sharing his faith gifted intelligent solid adventist fifth-generation Adventist, as Adventist as Ellen White, did you know what I mean? And, and yet uncomfortable about what he could do, you know? Talk to anyone about finances and doing smart stuff with money, but sharing the gospel was a different story. And, and so this, this ride that we did, it was, as I said, DC to St. Louis, and watching him each day grow as he's sharing his faith, that was one of the sweetest and best things about the ride. And one of the most fulfilling things about pastoring is watching and sharing in the growth of your elders. Potential's a dirty word, but watching elders reach their potential is one of the sweetest experiences 
on the planet. Now, I just want to come back here for a sec. I've got to, I forgot my remote for the PowerPoint, so I've got to run that. If, if I could say this as well, and I, my wife told me don't say this, but I'm going to say it. Has your wife ever said something to you like that? I think numerically our church is in a crisis, a huge crisis that's not being articulated, that's not being addressed. We could say a lot of things about a lot of numbers, but this is one that's really hit me profoundly recently. 140 million babies are born on the planet every year. Can you just think about that with me? 140 million babies are born every year. That's, that's more than four bundles of joy arriving every second. 4.3, to be honest. You know, think of it this way. Take a breath with me. Breathe in. Hold it for two. Breathe out for two. In that six seconds... 25 little kids just popped out and took their breath, their first breath. 140 million every year. And, you know, people look at, at birthing in different ways. And they look at these 140 new babies. The environmentalists, they panic because we've got limited resources. What's these 140 million new kids going to do to our planet? Whereas... Capitalists, yeah, so, oh, good, just set it up, will you, while I talk. Is that okay? Well, while capitalists, you know, I'm thinking, congratulations on the Amazon gift card, but Steve Bezos, at the sound of 140 million new Amazon customers every year, <laughs> he's feeling pretty good about that. Not to mention the new guy that wants to buy Twitter. You know, that's 140 new million new Teslas that he could sell every year as well. You know, so environmentalists... Man, you are good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, all right. So environmentalists look at these 140 million in one way. Capitalists look at, look at it in another way. But we are Seventh-day Adventists. How do we look at this 140 million new people every year? As Adventists, we see clearly from our Bibles and from world events that the second coming is, is not too far away. Do we, can we still believe that? I do. I really think that the return of Jesus is everything for this planet. And so 140 new people every year to be ready and waiting for the new hope, this, this great hope, the return of Jesus. To me, that's everything. The return of Jesus is the everything of history. It's the everything of our planet. The, the incarnation of Jesus, it only makes sense if he's coming back again. So... And this is the part that I hate to share, and this is what my wife said, don't say it. It's taken us 180 years to get to how many? About 20 million on a good day. Yeah, yeah. And there's 140 million born every year. I don't want to discourage you, but I want... We've got to talk about reality, don't we? What, what the real issues really are. So, every year, seven times our membership is born. Most will be born in circumstances that are ambivalent or hostile to Christianity because it's, it's parts of the world that's not the Western part of the world that has the highest birth rates. Most will be exploited by capitalism and most will be born in circumstances where they're unaware that God's love is free and never-ending. 
they won't be born in Christ-centred homes. You know, the love of God, it provides an abundance of grace to save every one of those babies born every year and more. There is no limit to that. They're not going to be exploited by the love of God. But here's, here's something that scares me about the church and the Seventh-day Adventist church. I sense that there's a creeping form of universalism coming into the church. Now, what do I mean by that? Can I just unpack that? For one thing, the Bible doesn't teach universalism. Jesus didn't teach that everyone will be automatically saved. But forgive me for saying this, we can be lulled into the, the thought, into the feeling that somehow the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit is going to sort all of this out and we can live meaningful lives without having to get our... It's, I find it stressful sharing my faith. You, you know, I feel my heart beating extra sharing the gospel. It's, it's not something that I... I'm not an extrovert. Forgive me for saying that. I find it hard. But I'm compelled to witness. I'm compelled to share. And somehow we can be tempted to think, the Holy Spirit's going to get this sorted. I don't need to bother about it. But let's just reflect and... Can I just remind you of that lovely passage from Luke chapter 8? And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell on the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he, meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God, the ones along the path are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away their word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be what? Jesus is really confronting universalism here. Wow. Are you hearing me? Yeah. yeah. Salvation is taken from them. It is possible for people to be lost. As wonderful and as beautiful and as sweet as the grace of God is, people can be lost. He goes on and unfolds this. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. You know how this finishes, but you've got the impact of this parable of Jesus. It is clear that people can be lost. The wages of sin, guys, it's death. Salvation is only found in Jesus. And if I can just emphasize this verse here, you know it well, Romans 10. And uh, it says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Amen. Can I get an amen? amen. Yeah. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are what? Sent. That sounds a lot like empowerment to me. 
Now, this isn't just talking about ordaining pastors and sending them out and singing hymns as they go, you know, wherever... Do you know what I mean? This, this is talking about real people that we can have problems with and issues with in our local church as we rub shoulders with them. No relationship is sweet and perfect. But empowering difficult elders, difficult deaconesses and deacon, deaconesses and sending them. Not sending them away so that they're away from a church and the problem goes. But sending them and going with them and journeying with them. Where's Jaime? Doing it in reverse to what you talked about with what your elder did for you. Taking them with ministry and showing them, sharing with them. You know, when, when you think of the task that we face and you think of the task that the early church faced, I think the early church even had a tougher deal than we had. Think with me. The earliest followers of Jesus in the days immediately after his resurrection, they encountered a whole lot more opposition and the numbers were even less favourable for them. According to Acts 1.15, how many were there in that upper room? 120. 20 million sounds a whole lot better than 120, doesn't it? 120, and they had the whole then known world before them. Okay. And they had some resistance. Their Jewish brothers and sisters were opposed to them. Rome, that iron empire of Rome, anyone that worshipped anything but Caesar was, was in serious strife. And I'm talking death penalty here. Then how did they get around? Think of the travel to even share the word. No, no Twitter, no Facebook. And, and even written material, communication was very, very limited. And what's more, these people didn't live for all that long. Their life expectancy was nothing like what we can enjoy today. A lot of people would have been lucky to see 50 years of age. And yet, all of that against them. Let's think not was what was against them, but let's think what was with them and with us as well. What did they have? Well, they had the absolute assurance of the Great Commission from Jesus. This, this wasn't something along the idea of where Jesus said to the 12 disciples, hey, I've got an idea. What do you think of this? What, what if we try? No, this was a great commission. This was all authority and power. This, it's only with that authority and power that the supernatural and for the gospel to go to the planet, it's not just with human power. It's got to be supernatural. They had that authority from Jesus himself. And we've got, we've got the word to support that. They were promised the Holy Spirit, but it wasn't just a promise. It was a gift. We, we can see how important that is in the book of Acts. They were given the Holy Spirit. And what's more, the Holy Spirit wasn't just poured out on that 120. We read later in Acts that it was poured out on Gentiles as well. And think with me, I think so many times we don't realise how Jewish the early church was and, and the stigmas involved with being Gentile and Jewish, you know. And we're not just talking about circumcision here. We're talking about who we can eat with. You, you know the deal. Jews couldn't eat with Gentiles. And this was an issue in the church. Talk about factions in the early church. And yet the Holy Spirit was poured out on these Gentiles. 
Praise God for that. Miraculous stuff. So more happened besides that. There's this promise of the Holy Spirit. We being evil know how to give good gifts to our, our kids. How much more does the Father want to give what? The Holy Spirit. It's not just talking about blessings and the, the financial gospel, you know, the, the, the gospel of wealth. We're talking about here, it's the promise of the Holy Spirit that God is so eager to give. And it kind of scares me that the Adventist church, when we look at those numbers, 140 million new babies every year, 20 million members, and we're kind of scared of the Holy Spirit for what might happen. We need that miracle. We need to pray for it earnestly. Now, I've got myself lost in my notes here, but let me, let me just catch up. The other critical thing that they did in the early church was that there was no resource that couldn't be used for the gospel. No resource was out of use for God. Let's look at Acts chapter 2. People different sorts of people. Acts chapter 2 verses 17 and 18 talks about old men, young men, men and women, youth. All people are to be used in the proclamation, in the sharing of that message. We, we, the early church didn't limit categories of people that could be involved in ministry. And then in Acts chapter 3 and verse 6, it talks about Peter and John there, how they were poor. Do you remember? Silver and gold I do not have. And there was no kind of Rolex watch hiding under robes of poverty. They were genuinely poor. And we read later in that same passage that they were uneducated, without rank, but they'd been with Jesus. And some look at that and think that it, it's something to be aspired towards to have no education. But the early church not only used uneducated people without rank or position in society, they also used the highly educated. And we'll come to a specific example of that. So all people irrespective of their gifts, who they were, their background, their education, their wealth. And there were deacons, deacons like Stephen and Philip. Think of their, their commitment and their involvement with the mission. You know, it wasn't just passing out offering bags. These guys were literally up to their eyeballs and beyond with their involvement with the total package of the mission. Full investment. There was Dorcas. Wow, a woman, something like a deaconess, had an extraordinary ministry. There was a young girl called Rhoda. She had a part to play. There was a foreign woman from Thyatira living in Philippi. Do you remember her name? Lydia. Lydia. She discovered the gospel and had an important part. There was the jailer in Philippi. He was brought in. He had a part in the ministry. There was Timothy, a man with, a young guy with mixed ancestry in his background. Mother, father from two different groups. Didn't exclude him. He had a part. And then in Acts chapter 9, verses 32 to 35, there's the often forgotten story of Aeneas. Do you remember this guy? Paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. And what did Aeneas do? He was used to bring the gospel message to the city of Lydda and the whole surrounding area of Sharon. Extraordinary. 
Even a bedridden man for eight years had a part to play. You know, yesterday I was speaking just with a, a lovely mother with a, a, a child with a disability. And this mother was exploring ways and seeing how this child with different gifts can be involved in ministry. There are people with all sorts of potential. You know, Acts 9, there's the account of Ananias with questions about going to this Saul of Tarsus. People with questions were still involved in ministry. There was the Ethiopian eunuch. You can't tell me that he didn't incorporate and he didn't have a message to take to the Ethiopians. And then, of course, there's that kid that fell asleep because Paul preached on and on, raised from the dead. Even a kid that falls asleep or is distracted in church has a part in the mission. Every human resource that the church had, they employed, they had a role. And they used the resource of locations as well. Their homes, when they went to visit in other homes, Jewish homes, Gentile homes, temple courts, Solomon's Colonnade, upper rooms, marketplaces, rented facilities, amphitheatres, synagogues, workplaces, open areas, places of prayer, riversides, deserts, cities, towns, villages, jails. It's a list when we look at the, the places, the locations that they used. Every resource. They would use the resource of time, day and night, at midnight. If they were locked in jails... They would use that jail cell. They would sing every opportunity. And they used their time in an incredible way. You remember the story of Philip. He's told to go up to the chariot. How did Philip go to that chariot? The text says he ran. You know, we, we think we're pretty cool because we can communicate in seconds around the world. For the early church, seconds matter. He didn't just walk quickly, he ran. Instantaneous response. Every moment was precious, every opportunity. You know, we can think we're, we're sophisticated, but they used incredible methods. Even when Paul was snake bit, that was an opportunity to reveal a little more. And think with me, when Stephen was dying, he wasn't praying about, Lord, this is unfair. I don't deserve this death. What was Stephen praying? Yeah. He's praying for those people who are killing them, killing him. Lay not this sin. Was his prayer answered? Absolutely. Their cloaks had been left at whose feet? Saul's. Even in death, death was an opportunity to, to, to speak to human hearts. You know, there was a lovely pastor. His name's Patrick Boyle. Patrick Boyle, he was born into an Irish Roman Catholic family in Dublin. He discovered the gospel, grew and became a wonderful Seventh-day Adventist pastor. He had a heart as big and as generous as you could imagine. I got to know him and it was a thorough blessing to get to know Patrick. He died recently in a London hospital. I heard the story of his death and I tell you, it moves me to tears. In the public health system in London, don't, don't think of a room where they put Seventh-day Adventist pastors to die with nice mood lighting, fresh flowers all around the room and gentle music playing as you breathe your last. You're in a room with at least three other people that are in a similar condition. This is like factory health care, if you know what I mean. And there's a curtain between each bed and that's about it. And he's in there dying 
and there are three other people in that same room that are dying. And he's seeing the family members grieving and not coping well as they're coming to the bedside of their parents and their loved ones. And, and, and Patrick calls them over. And as he's dying, he's praying with them. He's sharing the gospel with him. His last moments demonstrated his whole life. He had the security of salvation himself that he wasn't worried about the embrace of, of God's lovely grace accepting him. He was looking to others. And to me, what a way to go. I hope I can go in that same way that our colleague did or, or Stephen did. But, you know, there's one guy in the book of Acts that I'd really like to focus on. To me, he epitomises a local church elder in, in so many ways. Let me, let me share with you, you, you know this guy. We know him not by his real name, but by his nickname. Let me read to you from Acts chapter 4. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. This is this resource thing. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So many contrasts here. While people laid their cloaks at Saul of Tarsus's feet to kill the deacon, here Barnabas is laying the assets, all the assets of sold property at the apostles' feet. We know a little about this Barnabas. We know him by that nickname. He was a discipler, a nurturer, a mentor. But who were these Levites? The Levites were the wealthiest and the most educated in their community. Not all of them were priests. They had important tasks. Most of it was educating and teaching people. So please don't think that the quality is to be uneducated. And my point is, is that it's hard to find somebody as significant in the book of Acts as Barnabas. Barnabas is like this chugging diesel engine that just beats away under the water that keeps this early mission moving. An extraordinary man, what he did. Now, let's discover a little about Barnabas. Acts 11, 22 to 24, describes him as a man, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Important attributes. We're told in Colossians 4 that he was a cousin of John Mark. And if we look at the Adventist Bible Dictionary... There's a tradition that has him as one of the 70 or the 72. Now let's just think about this for a minute. He was full of the Holy Spirit and yet he didn't make the cut to get into the 12, but he was in the 70. I've got to tell you, it's so easy if we're overlooked for something that we'd like to be part of. It's easy to take our bat and go home, if you know what I mean, and not play ball. To, to, to lose momentum in ministry. There's no evidence of that with Barnabas. 
I'm sure he would have liked to have been in that special 12 with Jesus. Who wouldn't? He had the right attributes, educated, money, full of the Holy Spirit. He was a good guy. But God had something in mind for Barnabas. Barnabas, when, when you examine his ministry, and it's, pardon me for reminding you of this this morning, you know this, but it's, it's important. We read how when Paul came, or Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. This is in his earliest days. But how did they respond to him? They rejected him. They were screening him out. And Barnabas took Saul to the apostles. The, the Greek has the idea, he took him under his wing and took him to, to, to the apostles. And when we listen what he did there, he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. This is Barnabas taking a young guy into the executive committee. Are you with me? Yeah. When we don't have a voice, when we're not trusted, Barnabas was a voice and the trust for Saul. Think with me if Barnabas hadn't done that with Saul. Now, things got pretty hot here. Saul stayed and he moved about in Jerusalem. He spoke boldly. And, and he upset the, everyone in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's not a good place to upset people. <laughs> and so what did, they, what did they do with this young guy that's a bit of a handful? <laughs> Saul of Tarsus. It was a case of return to sender. Send him back to wherever he came from. <laughs> Literally. They put him on a boat and sent him back to Tarsus. Now, thankfully, Barnabas's ministry with Saul didn't finish in Jerusalem. Barnabas, he coughed up all that money for the church, worked as a volunteer, wasn't on the payroll, and yet followed the directions of the apostles. The apostles told Barnabas, hey, we think it would be a good idea for you to go up to Antioch. And there wasn't even a bus fare in it for, for Barnabas. Travelled at his own expense. He goes up to Antioch. Let's read, read this. Now, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas does his thing at Antioch, but there's just a few words in Acts that are so important about Barnabas. Then Barnabas, he left Antioch and he went to Tarsus for a one agenda meeting to look for who? To look for Saul. How far is that journey from Antioch to Tarsus? It's 148 miles. The typical journey in those days was 20 miles. That's at least seven days travel. There's at least a Sabbath in there, maybe two, that he wouldn't have travelled on. So we're looking at nine, possibly ten days journey on foot to get to Tarsus from Antioch. And he went there for one reason, to look for Saul. And then notice the text and when he found him. This is the precise same Greek that's used in those three beautiful parables of Jesus. And when he found him. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Barnabas understood discipleship and he understood Christianity. This is the model of an elder in the first century, what an elder could become.
my dream is, is to reach, to reach these 140 million babies that are born every year. How do we do it? It's not just with pastors. It's not just... It's not just with human resources. We need every single resource. All that we have, all that we are, all the people that we have, with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And think with me. Think what the resources they used in the book of Acts. Even Peter's shadow made a difference. Even Peter's shadow. I promise you I don't have COVID. Even Paul's handkerchief. You know the story. Even Paul's handkerchief was a resource that they used. Are you hearing me? Every resource. We can't afford to not get on with people in the church and screen them out. Like Barnabas reached out to Saul, what Saul could become with Paul. Think with me. Think with me what your New Testament would look like if it wasn't for Barnabas. Think of Paul's epistles. Would he be accepted enough to have his works in the text today. Who else did Barnabas mentor? There was that young kid that left them on their first missionary journey. John Mark. Do you remember? Paul and Barnabas had a bit of a to-do about John Mark. And what did Barnabas do for John Mark? Mentored him, discipled him. What became of that John Mark? He wrote the Gospel of Mark. And he was useful to Paul. Exactly. Think with me. When we went to seminary, who wrote the first Gospel? Mark. Mark invented a new genre of literature. There's no other literature in antiquity like the Gospel of Mark. Creative guy, used by the Holy Spirit, mentored by Barnabas. Matthew and Luke, the synoptics. What would our Bibles look like without the ministry of Barnabas? An elder gave his money, worked for nothing, Followed the direction of the apostles. Are you seeing the links? We need every elder. We need every deacon. We need every deaconess. We need every kid. We need every, every person. We need people that are in their beds for eight years and cripple. Everyone involved in ministry. We need all assets, our handkerchiefs. And can I finish with a story of a bicycle? We need people on bicycles. Where I came from, Seventh-day Adventists used to be teased as the seven-day bike riders. Because we, you remember when the Mormon missionaries used to be on bikes? We were confused with the Mormons. Well, let me share with you a story. In 1846, there was a guy born in Scotland. His name was Philip Reeky. And other than Jesus... And other than my biological ancestors, I've discovered that this man is the most important person for me to be where I am today. Born in Scotland, 1846. He got married, happily married, had four kids. His wife, his wife died when she was young. He was left alone with four kids. He thought it'd be a good idea to remarry. The second marriage was an absolute disaster. He divorced and he decided to leave Scotland and look for not a new wife, but a new life in Australia. He left Scotland, arrived in Melbourne, 
And somebody gave him a book called Thoughts on Daniel and Revelation by Uriah Smith. He read it, he became an Adventist. His job was an engraver. He left that job and he got a bicycle and he became a literature evangelist. And if he didn't ride, and this is in the 1800s, and if he didn't ride hundreds of miles, he rode thousands of miles through remote parts of Australia. There's a place in Australia called Yugara. It's so remote, Australians haven't even heard of it. Back in those days, it took five days' journey to get to Sydney to this little place called Yugara. Living in Yugara was my great-great-grandfather and great-great-grandmother. They lived on this farm growing wheat and sheep. They had 11 kids. It was the 1800s. His name was Tom, her name was Mary. Mary was, what, what other name would they have? Tom and Mary, right? <laughs> Mary was 45 and she caught pneumonia. She knew things were not looking good. She said to Tom, she said, Tom, I'm going to die. She said, promise me that when your time comes, we'll meet in heaven. And she said, also promise me that you'll do all that you can so that the kids will join us when their time comes. Tom had no idea how to keep that promise, but he made it. And then not so long afterwards, he's ploughing the ground behind a horse and a guy on a bicycle. What's his name? Philip Ricky rides up to him on a bicycle. And sells him this book. The Great Controversy. He discovered how he could keep that promise. This is the actual book. He didn't just read it, he wrestled with it. There was a night when it went across the room in their little cottage because he didn't like what he was reading. <laughs> it wasn't easy for an Anglican in 1800s Australia to start following what this book was talking about. His kids thought he'd gone nuts. They called it religious mania. He started keeping the Sabbath. He thought he was the only Sabbath observer in all of Australia. On the edge of their property was a river and he'd go down there on Sabbath morning with his Bible and this and spend the day reading and in meditation. The kids, they were distraught. And then they heard him praying for them. It softened their hearts and they began to listen to their old dad. All of the kids became Adventists. He shared it with his neighbours, the Chapmans, the Gersbacks, the Greys. Five other families became Adventists. They were poor people. They built a church in the middle of nowhere made of pressed earth, mud bricks, and from that one book, there's been a lot of pastors that have come from those early families, a lot of missionaries. From that one book, the most minimal number of people that could trace their ancestry back to Philip Rieke on a bicycle is at least 20,000 Adventists from just one book, this book. So, thinking about Philip Rieke, we put a small group together of eight riders and we rode our bikes from Washington DC to St. Louis. We took all the back roads 
the small roads where we would meet people, maybe not ploughing behind a horse, but checking their mailbox, walking their dog, cutting the grass on their front lawn. Eight of us rode. For that part of the journey, it was 1,148 miles. And we shared, well, what book did we share? This issue of the great controversy. There are some that are reluctant, and I was once one of them, reluctant to share the great controversy, thinking it was too in your face. But the more I think about this book, there's a lot of stuff around about in books, articles, blogs, vlogs about people love Jesus but not so much the church. And people are disillusioned with Christianity because of the church, not because of Jesus. The great controversy unpacks why that's the case. Why people can still trust and believe Jesus and still trust and have confidence in the Bible. To me, that's why I love the great controversy. This issue that we were fortunate enough to get, at the start of each chapter, it has a QR code. So it will read that chapter to you in English or Spanish. It's not an intimidating sized book. You compare what great-great-grandpa great Tom had to get through this is not an intimidating read when it's packaged like that and it can be read to you. My uncle baptised me when I was a kid and as a gift he gave me this book. And I know oftentimes when a person's baptised, the week after they're baptised, it's a downer. Mine was one of the highest experiences because I read that book that he gave me, Your Bible and You. And I read that book and I thought to myself, I want to be a Christian. I want to be a Seventh-day Adventist Amen. for the rest of my life. Because this book doesn't seem to be printed with ink. It seems to be printed with love. Amen. And so we talked with the Maxwell estate and they were kind enough to allow us to update it. So we've got all the... And it was we picked it up the Thursday before we left on the bike ride. So... We shared that with the great controversy and this flyer. And this flyer just shares the story of why we did the ride. And I've never found something in outreach where people came to us looking for it. It reminded me of Peter and John on the temple after they healed the man at the Gate Beautiful, where people were running up to see what was going on. We're dressed in these... I will go jerseys, there's a group of us, and people are saying, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And sharing with them. We shared 6,000 pieces of literature and no one had to have their arm twisted to take it. And most said, without us even coaxing or asking for it, they said, volunteer, I promise that I'll read this. It was as though... When they saw what we were going through, it earned the right to a conversation and they were open in that conversation. So we're talking about resources, we're talking about people. On the group, there was a young Vietnamese woman, incredible writer, what she did. Let me just go back to the home. There was Rob, an elder. We did this all on annual leave we paid for our own lodging, our own meal. This wasn't a GC junket, if you know what I mean. Hey, I want to ride my bike, have a bike vacation. If I spin out a great controversy once a day, I can get it all funded. No way known. We didn't want that. So it was vacation time, annual leave time. We funded it. And God blessed in a wonderful way. So I hope that inspires. I hope... You look at your elders in a different way, that you see Barnabas. Philip Rickey was an elder. He wasn't an ordained pastor. And he got on his bike 
and he changed my eternal destiny from the 1800s to now and 20,000 others. His resource was a bicycle. The New Testament talks about handkerchiefs and shadows. It talks about elders. It talks about kids. It talks about deacons and deaconesses. It talks about snake bites and deaths. The resource of death. What can we do? The resource in your church. What's in your hands? 140 million. Think about that number. I've said my piece.